this is the in focus podcast from the hindu welcome to the hindus in focus podcast i'm zubeda hamid your host for today over the last 10 days desperate students from india have been asking to be evacuated from ukraine as the fighting there gets increasingly worse on tuesday a 21 year old mbbs student from karnataka was killed in the eastern ukrainian city of kharkiv reportedly by russian firing when he was waiting outside a grocery store as of wednesday evening at least 2000 indian students are believed to still be stranded in the country students from india have for many years now gone abroad to study but apart from the destinations one usually thinks of such as the united states the united kingdom canada and australia an increasing number of students are also studying in russia china ukraine the philippines kazakhstan and other countries many of them for medical degrees An estimated 18,000 Indian students were studying in Ukraine when the conflict broke out. Again, a majority of them at medical universities, many of them from tier 2 and tier 3 cities of India. Students, parents and educational consultants say the primary driving factor is the costs. While a medical education in Ukraine is estimated to cost around rupees 20 lakh for the entire course, in India, costs at a private medical college can range from rupees 50 lakhs to upwards of rupees 1 crore. And how many medical aspirants get into Indian medical colleges? As per government data, there are 88,120 MBBS seats available in the country, but only half of these are in the government sector where the college fees are relatively low. Just last year, however, we had 15 lakh candidates registered for NEET, which is the test that determines admission to medical colleges, which means that a majority of those aspiring to get into medical colleges were not able to secure a seat. The distribution of medical colleges in India too is skewed. Most are in the southern states and in Maharashtra, with very few colleges in many northern parts of the country. Even when students do come back after obtaining a medical degree in Ukraine or a few other countries, for instance, they cannot immediately start practicing. They have to write the foreign medical graduates examination, the pass percentage of which, as per reports, is only around fifteen percent. However, even so, over the last five years. there has been a threefold increase in the number of candidates attempting this exam so why is it that medical education continues to remain to be unaffordable to thousands of our students prime minister modi a few days ago asked why the private sector couldn't get into this field and why states couldn't allot land for medical colleges as many of our students were going to small countries abroad to study are more private medical colleges in the country the answer or do state governments need to do more to set up government medical colleges Are our regulatory frameworks too stringent in their norms required to set up medical colleges? Is capping fees at private medical colleges as the National Medical Commission has now proposed for at least some seats the answer? And can India achieve its commitment of having one doctor per 1000 people as recommended by the World Health Organization later this decade? To speak to us about this and more, we have with us today Dr. Rajiv Das Gupta. Professor at the Center of Social Medicine and Community Health, Jawaharlal Nehru University, New Delhi. Good morning, Dr. Rajiv Das Gupta, and welcome to the Hindus in Focus podcast. Good morning, and thanks to the Hindu for the invitation. Doctor, India has a long history of of sending students abroad to study medicine, and not just to developed nations such as the U.S., U.K., or Canada. Indian students also pursue medicine in Russia, in China, the Philippines and Ukraine. Students and their parents say it is far cheaper to study in these countries compared to studying at a private medical college in India. 
Why are the costs of medical education in India so out of the reach of thousands of our students? Thank you. This is indeed a very pertinent problem and not just in the context of the current global crisis, but in fact, the human resources for health in general has been a point of conversation in the ongoing pandemic too. But on this specific question, increasingly, the provider of private medical education in India is the private sector. The investment from the governments, particularly the state governments, hasn't really kept pace with the requirement of doctors. And increasingly, the private sector has been invited as a partner to join this process. But that in its turn has introduced at least two or three disparities. One is, of course, the issue of cost. As current media reports inform everyone, the costs in the private medical colleges can be anything as high as even 1.5 crores uh, for the entire curriculum. But some are, of course, that that's only true for some and not for most private colleges, but yet it's way above what it costs in the public system. The second is the skewed production with six high production states, the southern and the western states who have about 31% of the population, but nearly 60% of the medical seats as well as 60% of the nursing college seats. And in contrast, where the population is high, the India's population is high, those eight low production states, which account for about 46% of India's population, nearly half, uh, actually have about 20-21% of MBBS seats and about the same of nursing college seats. And, and that is essentially owing to the nature of skewedness in private sector providers. Doctor, you were telling us about how there are far more medical seats available in the South and in the Western states compared to the North. So so what, what has happened over the course of several years? Have certain states not set up the infrastructure for medical colleges while certain states have focused on it? Has that what has led to this disproportionate distribution of seats across the country? Both are true in the sense that there hasn't really been a very structured discourse on what the transnational, uh, sorry, what the national health framework and therefore what the human resource demand is. Second, much of the conversation on human resources in health is centered around doctors and not enough around the entire spectrum of health workers and doctors really are the minuscule proportion in that sense in the entire spectrum of health workers. Third, some states have provided a better investment climate, if I may, including a slew of legal provisions which made it attractive to set up medical colleges. And on the other hand, other states have primarily or at least predominantly stuck to the government route of setting up new medical colleges or upgrading new ones. And that at least in part, explain some of these differences. According to government data, there are 
88,120 MBBS seats available in the country as of December 2021. About half of these are in private medical colleges, which means we have only about 40 to 44,000 seats available in government medical colleges. Just last year, 15 lakh students registered for NEET, which is the admission exam to medical colleges. 15 lakh students competed for less than 1 lakh seats. There seems to be a huge mismatch between the number of aspirants and the actual availability. Over the course of several decades, how have we not managed to make this mismatch a little less? Or what what are the reasons behind this? As we all know that the National Rural Health Mission was set up in 2005, which subsequently became the National Health Mission. It has it has been one of the most critical inputs in the contemporary phase of health investment in the country. And as a part of that, it focused on human resources for health as well. And it set up a high-level expert group, popularly the HLEG, which actually made a set of projections for 2012-2022, which means we are at the end of that projection phase. And based on the global norm of 23 workers per 10,000 population, this is overall workers, and one doctor per 1,000 population and three nurses and midwives per doctor, it set up, it made a set of projections. And based on this HLEG, the country hopes to reach a norm of one doctor per 1,000 population by 2028. Now, that's the horizon that we, if we keep that horizon in mind, uh, it set out three options. Option A, which is 187 new colleges. This is to enable the country to have one doctor per 10,000 population. So option A means 187 new colleges of which 129 by 2017 and 58 by 2022. Option B is 124. Option C is 80 new. And option D, if we don't set up at all. Now, broadly, this is what the need is. But each state has somewhat gone its own way in the sense that states like West Bengal have largely, I'm saying largely focused on upgrading district hospitals into medical colleges. Whereas there are many states, as we know, who have invested private entrepreneurs or private investment or even collaborated on public-private partnerships to set up medical colleges. Uh, But the bottom line is that all states agree and all states do pay attention to the fact that new colleges, a lot of new colleges have to be added. So this is a work in progress. But at the same time, the attendant costs that a family or a parent incurs to have his his or her child to be trained as a doctor, that's not something to which states have committed uniformly, at least notionally, that is. Have we been reluctant to regulate fees at private medical colleges? The elaborate regulatory requirement for setting up a private, for setting up any medical college and therefore what it means for a private medical college has immense requirements of land, building, and of course, human resources, equipment. One can understand that this is an extremely complex system as a whole, including the fact that in your initial application, you will also have to give 
a projection for achieving the financial viability of that institution, which of course one understands is a requirement. But running a medical college also means running a hospital. And what is often the case is that while there are enough buyers, if I may, for the medical seats that are being offered, the hospital often can't be run on an equally paying basis. In other words, the capacity to pay among patients uh, and, and consider the fact that because of the land requirements, many of these colleges are actually located in relatively smaller towns or away from big cities, though there are a separate set of land and building concessions if you are setting it up in metros or large cities, but then that in its turn is also prohibitively expensive. But the fact that many of these are located in peri-urban or often rural regions means that the patients can't pay at the rate at which a student can pay who is actually making a choice to be in that particular college. But a patient is often there in terms of his or her geographical compulsions or clinical urgency and so on. So therefore, there's a huge mismatch between what a hospital can earn and what a college can earn, but then it's a total unit. And that often has a bearing on the financial health of medical colleges and therefore students or the tuition fees rather need to bear a disproportionate burden of actually running the institution that at least in part explains some of the cost issues. Doctor, a few days ago, Prime Minister Modi said our students were going to various small countries for medical education and This is not just Ukraine. Students from India go to Philippines, go to Kazakhstan and other bigger countries like Russia and China as well. The Prime Minister asked why the private sector couldn't get into this field more than it already has and why states were not making policies to give land so that India could have more doctors. But are more private medical colleges the answer you've just been telling us about why the model might not be fully workable? Also, do we need relaxations in these very stringent norms that we have for the setting up of medical colleges in the first place? The fact is that the private sector has actually been investing a lot into medical education. And that's where most of the recent growth over the last couple of decades has been. Therefore, as a proportion, the private sector has added far more seats as a unit than governments have, both the central and the state government together, that is. So the private sector has been investing, but yes, as we were discussing based on the HLEG projections, there is still a huge need and demand for investment into medical colleges, which governments will primarily have to lead either by direct provisioning or facilitating the private sector. Now, how how does it actually facilitate the private sector? That, That itself opens a Pandora's box probably. And it's not for me to pass pass judgment on that. But yes, while there may be a plethora of private investors ready to to come into the medical education sector beyond who are already here, that is, uh, one certainly needs to look into why it hasn't been forthcoming if the demand indeed has, has been this high. The other issue is that are the cost imperatives only on account of the National Medical Commission regulations? Or that, that, that simply this, this business model or, 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 this, or this investment model has these, has these strings attached to it in a, in a country like India. Is it just about 25 acres of land? I'm, I'm not too sure. Also, many, many 
of these uh, so-called investors maybe having a standalone medical college. In other words, it's not part of a larger, broader educational endeavor such as university. Dental colleges, for example, we have seen an overproduction and that balloon has honestly burst. That's equally true of investment, private investment in engineering colleges. So it's not really a very, very, a very uniplanar thing, but the fact that this has so many facets actually means that this is a lot more complex than just investing, sorry, inviting investment as, as with any, as with many industries or many sectors. So here, here is a situation where governments really need to, to come to the forefront in, in, in order to, 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 to meet these uh, projections. And broadly speaking, this is guided by the WHO's Global Strategy on Human Resources for Health, popularly called the Workforce 2030 Report. And the Workforce 2030 Report actually sets out a roadmap with a certain set of milestones for 2020 and a certain set of milestones for 2030. Of course, India is a lot ahead than many other countries, both in the region as well as across the world. But then the the long-term goal, or the not-so-long-term goal rather, 2030s isn't too far, is to align not just the number of doctors, but the entire health workforce to meet the requirements of the sustainable development goals and the universal health coverage. And that really is where the ball that we should have our eyes on. Dr. One of the options it has always been suggested is converting district healthcare centers, district headquarters, hospitals, and sort of attaching them to medical colleges on a public-private partnership basis. Has this worked anywhere in the country and is that a workable model? This is something that's certainly been pursued across the country. To the best of my understanding, we still do not have structured evaluation of that experience, but that seems to be the fastest route to increasing the number of medical colleges. But at the same time, uh, what's extremely crucial, and I'm again going back to the WHO's Workforce 2030 guidelines or or advisories rather, that it's not just increasing the numbers, that's certainly the first and essential step, but it's, it's got to be backed by whole lot of efforts or measures that that requires nurturing the health workforce that requires retention that requires social acceptability and of of these human resources of health to the local context that entails making the human resource in health and as we are discussing specifically of doctors available equitably across a country or a state and finally the issue of quality now all that actually goes into addressing this whole coverage gap that we have currently and merely producing the numbers is the first step to that but that's not really the whole story. Speaking about merely producing the numbers doctor you told us a little while ago that we don't want to see medical education go the way of say the rampant commercialization that we have seen in the engineering sector and we don't want it to be an overabundance as well as you as you told us a little earlier about what happened to dental colleges in the private sector for instance how the national medical commission has recently said that 50% of seats in private medical colleges it's proposed that the fees for these 50% of seats be on par with those of government medical colleges 
Is that a step in the right direction, do you think? That could certainly be a step in the right direction. But in general, and I'm saying this in general, these kind of regulatory shifts need a very large-scale stakeholder consultation and stakeholder commitments. Now, is this merely a wish list or it has gone through a process and then arrived at? That's something I personally don't know, but I believe that's something which will actually, you know, make or break this. But yes, this is certainly a right step in right step. And therefore, the, the expenditure needs to be capped somewhere. This is equally true of capping treatment expenditures. And therefore, there's nothing wrong in the principle. But of course, institutions will will argue for sustainability, viability concerns. And, if, and, and, and as with any price capping, rather than a top-down dictate, it's best done along with stakeholders. And I said, in all fairness, one would assume that the governments would have arrived at through due process. Dr. One of the things that medical graduates, even after they come back from studying in, say, the Ukraine or China or Russia, they have to come back and write their foreign medical graduates exam. As one union minister pointed out recently, and as, as, as data reveals, the pass percentage in this exam is, is only about 10 to 20 percent. This exam is now proposed to be replaced by a national exit test, which will also likely become a qualifying final exam for all MBBS students, those who study in India and those who study abroad. What, what, do, you, what do you think about these particular steps? Are we, are we equalizing the field for all MBBS graduates or do those who study abroad need to go through a more stringent exam than those who study here? The fact is that all countries or nearly all countries put in some kind of a screening for foreign medical graduates. Now, on one hand, that's a very general statement. On the other hand, in the, in the current millennium or in the current decades, there is there's an increased shift towards international movement of labor in general and therefore health workforce in particular. And that's something we need to keep in mind. So international mobility, global labor mobility, these these are here to stay. They are not going to go away. So there's no question of good or bad about this. And very key ingredient to that is are two. One, to increase student mobility in medical and certainly allied education fields as much as possible domestically. And also, as far as international degrees or exchanges go, move towards mutual recognition. And, and that's something that, that countries can build in a structured manner. What the exit test, the national exit test, or popularly NEXT, or, I mean, going by the acronym NEXT, proposes is to bring the Indian medical graduates and the foreign medical graduates together. So there are going to be two tests. The first phase or the first level, popularly called termed the NEXT one. So if you pass NEXT one, then you will move on to the compulsory internship, which earlier wasn't there for Indian medical graduates. So you, you finished your MBBS and seamlessly moved into the internship and only after successful completion of the internship would you actually get the registration in the council or the license. But now what is proposed is that both Indian and foreign medical graduates will have to 
pass next one, complete the internship, and then after one year, appear for next two. And the next two is a combination of entrance for the post-graduation plus a license that you want to practice. And in case you fail next one, then you will again have to go back. Sorry, next two, you will again have to go to next one. Now, that's 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 the scheme, which is probably all right to, to bring students on the same platform, which is probably all right to reduce examinations. But at the same time, it probably also is, an, is a recognition of the fact that quality is extremely variable across the country because all medical colleges go through uh, an extremely rigorous NMC, which was earlier the MCI, the Medical Council of India, regulatory processes, which are, which are constant ongoing evaluation. So despite that, if we believe there is so much of unevenness in those who are graduating that they need to qualify another uh, licensing exam, that I think would lead us to introspect on the regulatory process as a whole. Doctor, one last social-ish question uh, before we sign off. Why in particular are students attracted to China, Russia, Ukraine, some Eastern European countries? And and why are these, as we have seen in the current crisis, a lot of them are from tier two and tier three cities of our India, of, of, of our country? Why in particular these places and why from the smaller towns? That's that's a story that seems to be emerging from various ground reports that the media has done in the context of the current crisis or situation. I, I do not have any direct answer to this, but I believe it's important to understand this as a sociological phenomenon. It's 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 to, to, to put it down just as market forces is probably oversimplistic. Probably there is a deeper story here. Probably there's a message here. Probably there are things to learn here that needs to build into the country's human resources for health policy and for doctors in specific. But finally, though there's an overwhelming attention on medical education, which is synonymous with producing doctors, but it's really paying attention to the overall human resources for health discourse, which includes nurses, which includes paramedics, which includes a plethora of technicians of laboratory personnel it's, it's an immense task uh, for, for for any country or for any state it's not an easy task but this needs to be seen in its totality and the, the attention is often hijacked by medical education only it is necessary but not sufficient so is it a task the building up of healthcare personnel in the country is it a task that we have not paid enough attention to by we, I mean the government has not paid enough attention to over the last few decades? No, governments have indeed paid attention, but often these have been either not backed by enough structured investment or by various adhocisms. As as all planning processes go, planning processes have their own uh, strengths and limitations, as we all know. But increasingly, as globally, uh, we have a commitment towards fulfilling SDG and UHC, the need more than ever now, and, and of course, disease profiles have changed, life expectancy has, has immensely improved. And, and it's not just a question of numbers, but what's the kind of density of health workers, the professionals that we have, what the age and gender distribution is, all of that has a bearing on on, on what we are 
ultimately able to render in terms of service to our population and our needs. So to align with with these needs or these commitments rather of, of UHC and SDG, this requires more structured attention than before. And it's not that the governments are not doing it. Of course, the governments are doing it. And part of these regulatory mechanisms that we were discussing is actually to fulfill those some of these 2020 milestones of, of the WHO's roadmap and a set of milestones to follow by 2030. So there is a lot of work, but yes, India has immense challenges. And I mean, doing, doing anything or changing anything in India is, is an immense task in terms, of, in terms of resources, in terms of managing diversities and so on. So it's, it's, it's a work in progress. Thank you so much for speaking to us, Doctor. Thank you. In Focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues. In the meantime, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and other platforms. Just search for In Focus by The Hindu. We'll see you soon.